Um, Russ is away on holiday, so for the next couple of weeks, uh, I'm going to be preaching today. Rory will be preaching next week, and I'm going to give a pretty straightforward gospel talk this morning. I, I pray it'll be really helpful for you. If you don't know about the Lord Jesus, I, I especially uh, hope it'd be helpful for you. But I don't, I don't know if you've thought about this, but some truths don't require any action at all. So if you learn that Canberra is the capital of Australia, you don't need to do anything with that bit of information. There's no response required. It's not life-changing, is it? But if you were to learn that perhaps there was a time bomb that someone's put under one of the seats in the auditorium and it's going to go off in five minutes, well, that would be a truth that's actually quite different, isn't it? You have a decision to make. You know, maybe you think, you'd start searching under the seats and you think, do I cut the red wire or the blue wire? Or, you know, do I try and get on the phone and call someone who knows something about bombs to take a look? Or maybe you'd try and run away, get as far away from here as you could. Or maybe you just sit tight, hope for the best and hope that some action hero gets in at the last minute and stops the clock with seconds to spare. Whatever you do, right, if, if, there was a, if you learned that there was a bomb under one of the seats, that would be a truth that actually you'd need to do something with it. You'd have to respond. I don't know if you noticed it, but in our passage in Acts 17 this morning, there was a, a truth which is more like the time bomb type variety than it is the Canberra as the capital of Australia type variety. You see it there in uh, Acts 17 verse 31. And this morning, I'm really only going to be concentrating on two verses. So two verses, three points, okay? But in verse 31, have a look with me. It says this. He, that is God, verse 31, he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who is appointed. Do you see that? The truth there, that's kind of time bomb type variety, is that God is going to judge the world. And I put it to you that that's actually good news. It actually gives meaning to our lives. It actually means that our lives are important. It means the things that we do have value. Now, as you look around the world at kind of the the global scale, and you see things happen like 9-11 or the Russian invasion of Ukraine or coups in Afghanistan or Myanmar or or whatever, we look at these things and you think, that's not right. We look at them and we say, it's actually good that a day is coming when God is going to bring about justice. You know, you look at the Holocaust, you look at the six millions of Jews that were killed under Hitler or millions more killed under Stalin or Pol Pot and you read that God is going to judge the world. And that's actually good. Because our legal systems don't always bring about justice, do they? They don't always get it right. I mean, you see families outraged when they've lost a loved one. And the perpetrator gets off with just a couple of years in jail. And you think, surely my loved one was worth more than that. Maybe you have experienced some sort of injustice in your life. Maybe something's happened to you and you feel, that's just not right. That's not fair. That's not just. Maybe you're feeling the pain of injustice. 
Well, we read here that God has set a day when he's actually going to judge the world with justice, with righteousness, and that's good. So yes, God's going to judge the Hitlers of this world and the Saddam Husseins and the Bin Ladens and the Kim Jong-uns and the Putins, but before we get carried away with God bringing about justice for them, we need to remember that God's actually going to bring me to account. And he's going to bring you to account. Yes, God's going to judge us. And how are we going to fare on that day of judgment? Well, I want to look at these verses in their context. So have a look at verse 22. I'm going to read the context of the verses. Verse 22, it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. See, the context is that Paul recognises that the people he's speaking to are very religious. These days, they might, we might call them spiritual. They were so religious and spiritual, in fact, they had an altar set up for every god that you could imagine. And just in case they might have missed one, they even had an altar with this inscription, to an unknown god. And Paul sees this and he says to them, I can see that you guys are very religious. You've got this altar to this unknown God. Well, let me tell you about this God. This God that you don't know. Verse 23 says, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You see, this God that they don't know is actually the true and living God. This is the God who made everything. He's the God who sustains the whole universe. You see, when the sun came up this morning, that only happened because he willed it. It wouldn't have happened if God didn't will it to be so. You see, God gives life to all men, we read there. We would not be here now. I wouldn't be here now if it wasn't for God. Verse 26, it says, He determines our allotted periods, the boundaries of our dwelling place. See, He determined the exact moment when each of us would be born. He determines every breath that we'll take. I mean, He determined that I would be here this morning saying these very words right now. He determines our lives. See, we think we control our lives. But God ultimately is the one who controls our lives. He's the Lord of life. He's the one who gives life. But why does he do that? Well, if you have a look at verse 27, what's the point of life? You want to know the meaning of life? I put it to you, Acts 17 verse 27. is a pretty good statement, the meaning of life. It says here, why has he done all this? 
that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. It is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. See, the point for which God created all of us, the point for which we have life, is that we would actually seek this true and living God. The problem is that none of us do. As Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Rome, chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, he says this, No one is righteous, no one understands, there is no one who seeks God. You see, when we're confronted with the true and living God, we actually, all of us, seek after other gods. And now the Athenians, to which Paul's speaking here, they were worshipping everything but the true God. They were very religious, they were very spiritual, but they weren't right with God. Do you know what the first of the Ten Commandments is? I got Rory to read them this morning, the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. This is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And the second one is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or on the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. But you see, these commandments were actually given to the nation of Israel. They were given to God's chosen people. Now, clearly the Athenians were not living in accordance with them, right? They were worshipping everything you can imagine, all sorts of things that they made up, that they carved for themselves, everything except God. But they weren't God's chosen people. Maybe they could plead ignorance. They They didn't receive the Ten Commandments. I'll keep reading. Verse 29. But then God's offspring... we. But being God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine beings like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. You see, we read here, God's actually been overlooking our ignorance. The Athenians actually are not going to be able to plead ignorance before God. They actually have no excuse, as we'll see in a moment. But what about us? Now, I'm guessing that you don't have any statues that you've carved for yourself at home and that you're worshipping. Although, you might. But if I was to ask you, what's the most important thing in your life? You see, in your spare moments, when your mind drifts off to something, where does it go? What is it that's actually consuming your thoughts? What is it that you're living for? Now, if the first thing that comes to mind is not the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to put it to you that you've got an idol. At least one. We've probably got numerous idols. 
They say for guys, it's the three Gs, glory, greed, girls. Maybe you could add a fourth one, guys. But we've got the wrong Gs, right? The wrong G. Everything but God. And the result is that God is actually angry with us. We don't actually give him his due. We don't give him his rightful place at the centre of our lives, the one who gives us every good gift. We ignore him and we worship all sorts of things instead of him. And we're in no position to plead ignorance either because, firstly, God's going to judge the world. But secondly, if you look there, verse 30, you see this. God's going to judge the world. The resurrection of Jesus assures this. Have a look at me, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Verse 31, because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who is appointed and he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul declares to the Athenians and he declares to all people everywhere, which includes us, that we have no excuse for our ignorance. He says God's actually make it perfectly clear that he's going to judge the world by raising Jesus from the dead. Now many people these days, and even back then, they would want to say that the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen. Or some might soften that a little bit and just say, well, we can't know. I wasn't there, so I can't really be sure if Jesus rose from the dead. But I want you to imagine another scenario. Imagine you've got a judge at a trial who says, I can't know anything about this case because I wasn't there. Yes, we had lots of people shot in a crowded shopping centre. Yes, we had hundreds of eyewitnesses who testified to what happened, but I wasn't there, so I can't make a decision. That would be ridiculous, right? No judge would do that. What you would do is you would get the evidence, you would get the eyewitnesses, you would listen to their testimony, that's what you would do. And you'd make judgments based on the evidence. So if you're not sure what to make of the resurrection of Jesus, might I encourage you to take a look at the evidence? Don't say, I can't know. Check out the eyewitness accounts. Check out their testimonies. You see, Jesus was a man who was publicly executed. He was absolutely dead. And this Jesus, who was absolutely dead, was absolutely alive again three days later, witnessed by up to 500 people at once. He wasn't just resuscitated moments later. He wasn't weak and wounded and showing the effects of near death. I mean, he had scars to be sure, but he was alive, larger than life, witnessed by hundreds of people. And the Apostle Paul, who was preaching to the Athenians, he was the one who had witnessed the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So for him, the bodily resurrection of Jesus was a historical fact. It was central to life itself, and Paul actually gave up his life to testify to this fact. 
And it's interesting to me that the New Testament never actually argues for the truth of the resurrection. It actually just assumes it. It takes it for granted. This is what happened. It was that sure and certain. But given that Jesus has risen from the dead, we actually now have no option but to take notice, to take this seriously. Because the resurrection is like God's big warning sign to us. It's a big warning sign that points us to this coming day of God's judgment. Now, almost 30 years ago now, um, I was up in northern Queensland with my family. I was visiting uh, my uncle, my dad's brother, who was living up at Ingham at the time. Now, if you don't know where Ingham is, it's kind of between Cairns and Townsville. Ask Josh Benora, he'll tell you exactly where it is. In fact, I think we, there might even be some people from reforming at Ingham right now. I think the Sandemans might be there. But anyway, I was up in northern Queensland, and as is the case in northern Queensland in the middle of the year, the, the weather was beautiful. And since my uncle and my dad were really into sailing, they thought we'd take out my uncle's 26-foot yacht and would sail around this place, Hinchinbrook Island. So we pulled up to the water, and uh, my dad and my uncle were there preparing this boat to go sailing. And my, my younger brother, Timothy, he saw, he saw some water, and he thought, oh, that'll be a little while. Water looks beautiful. I'll just go for a swim. It looked really refreshing. So he threw his towel down, he ran off, and I kind of looked over to where he was about to go for a swim. And I saw something that I concluded he must have not seen. So I yelled out to him, Tim, did you see this big sign back here? And he said, what sign? I said, the one you just ran straight past, the one that says, no swimming, crocodiles. See, here was my brother about to do something that at least was probably pretty unwise and could be potentially fatal. He had been unaware of this crocodile sign. He'd been ignorant of it, but now he had a choice to make, right? Here was a truth that required a response. See, should he go for his, continue with his plan to go swimming or should he turn around and not go? Well, he decided to not go for the swim. But had he not decided that, I actually would have pleaded with him to reconsider. I would have continued to try to persuade him until he listened. Now, he didn't take much convincing, but why did I point out the sign to him? Why would I have pleaded with him to take notice? Well, because I love him. (laughs) That's why. Now, I could have said to myself, well, there's a big sign here. And if he didn't see it, that's his own fault. And what do I get? Well, that wouldn't be loving my brother, would it? And why do I share this with you now? Well, because God is going to judge the world. And there's a day coming when all of us are going to be held to account by the God of the universe, and we're all guilty, and we all deserve punishment because we've ignored the one who made us and owns us. We've rejected him, we've rebelled against him, we've worshipped all sorts of unworthy things in place of him. And the resurrection of Jesus is actually a big warning sign to us 
but this day is coming. What are you going to do about it? So if you see a, a child run out on the road and, and you know there's a car coming, you can't just stand there and do nothing, can you? You see, if I see my brother about to go for a swim in crocodile-infested waters and I just stand there and do nothing, well, I can't do that. Not if I care at all. So as we see here, God is going to judge me and he's going to judge you and we're all guilty and that day is bearing down on us. And Now, I've heard people saying that they say, I hate it when people try to scare me with respect to God's judgment. And now it is true that a better reason to come to God is love and joyful thankfulness for who he is and for what he's done for us. That's absolutely true. But to be sure, there is a day coming when God's going to judge us, and it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's not a place that you want to be in. And it's not a question of me trying to scare you. It's a question of, do you have anything to fear? Was I trying to scare my brother with respect to the crocodile sign? Well, at one level, yes, I was. <laughs> but more accurately, I was actually trying to love him. And if I need to scare him to get him to get the point, well, so be it. It wouldn't be loving of me not to point out the reality of the situation that he was in. And so, church, if we know about the fact that God is going to judge the world, how can we not care for people who are living in a way that's unaware of this fact. If we care at all for people, we've got to tell them about this. And in light of Jesus' resurrection, there's only one sane response. It's my last point this morning. Verse 30. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, Jesus' resurrection is not just God's warning sign to us. It's also the source of our hope. This might be seen to be stating the obvious. But the reason that Jesus was resurrected was because he died. We're actually deserving of God's judgment But Jesus actually came into the world to take that judgment for us. He actually came to die in our place. He came to provide a way out before he judges us. And that's amazing news, okay? He came as a substitute to take the penalty for you and me so that when we trust in him we trust in his death in our place, we're actually made right with God. We're no longer facing God's judgment, God's anger at our sin. And Jesus' resurrection is actually the sign that his death was effective. Jesus actually conquered death. He's conquered sin. And he's risen so that all who trust in him can actually be freed from death and be raised with him. 
And so what's the response that we all need to make to God? Well, it says, God declares to all men everywhere to repent. Now, to repent just means to change direction. So, for example, my brother repented of going for his swim. He just turned around, turned his life, and started going the other direction. In this context, it means to turn from living for ourselves as ruler of our own life to living with God as ruler of our life. To go from worshipping other things apart from God to worshipping the true and living God. To change from making my own decisions about life independently of God to submitting to God as the rightful ruler of my life, of, of your life. Um, my dad's actually a pilot, and he also has an instructor, instructor's rating, which means that he can, he can teach people how to fly, and he, and he owns his own plane. Now, I remember one time, it was probably about 20 years ago now, that my dad and I, we went out for a flight, and for the first time ever, Dad let me actually take controls of the plane. He let me take off, he let me fly around, and we, we flew out of my hometown, which is in southern New South Wales, a little place called Tumut. It's at the foot of the snowy mountains, and we flew up over the mountains, over the dams, over the snowy schemes. You could see the snow, it was beautiful. But the longer I was flying for, the more I kind of felt like I knew what I was doing. I felt like, oh yeah, I can do this. But eventually we, we headed home for, for the airport in Tumut, and as we were approaching the land, I remember my, my dad turned to me and he said, Ryan, I'm going to take the controls back now. Now, how do you think my dad would feel at this point if I ignored him? If I just insisted on doing my own thing? Now, my guess is that at first he'd be upset. But it'd be worse than just my dad being upset with me because though I might have been able to convince myself that I knew what I was doing and that I could fly a plane, at least until it ran out of fuel, landing it would have been a whole different story, right? But that's what it's like with us and God. See, we've we've been hanging on to the controls of our lives and we might have even convinced ourselves that we know what we're doing and that I can kind of do this thing independently of God. We may have convinced ourselves that I can do a pretty good job. I can play God. But God is asking. No, God is commanding that we give the controls to our life back to him. And to ignore him will actually leave him angry with us. And we'll find ourselves on the wrong side of his judgment. And so my question for all of you this morning is, have you been insisting on running life your own way, independently of God? Or have you submitted to his rule? Are you trusting in him to guide you through life? Maybe you've never taken that step before. Maybe you feel like recently you've just been doing your own thing and you want to entrust your life to God. 
Trust me, he knows far better. He's, he can do a, great, a far better job than we can of being God, of trying to rule our lives. If you want to turn back to God and you want to say, God, thank you for sending your son for me, you should talk to him about that. Tell him you're sorry that you've been ignoring him, sorry that you've been chasing after and worshipping all sorts of things that aren't him. Maybe you've got some idol that you've been convicted that you're living for. Why not confess that to God today? Or maybe you've just been convicted of the truth that there is a coming day of judgment. And maybe you know that you've been seeing people living who are completely unaware of that. Maybe you want to pray for courage or boldness to speak to those that we love and say, hey... One day life is going to end and we're going to have to all stand before God. Have you thought about that day? Maybe we just need boldness to actually love people and go, yeah, if I care about people, I need to tell them about Jesus and about how they can be saved. We don't want to tell people how they can be judged. We want to tell them how God has taken the judgment in their place. How about I pray that we do that? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that it's actually good that you're going to judge the world righteously. That's actually a really good thing, that one day you're going to put everything right. We know there's so much injustice in our world. We thank you that that won't go on forever. You're going to put a stop to it. But Father, as we think about how we're going to fare on that day. We recognise that we have things that we've done, people we've hurt and wronged and all sorts of sin and uh, other things in our life. Um, We know we, we don't actually deserve to stand before you, but we thank you so much that you sent your son to take the judgment on our behalf before you judge us so that we can be right, that we can be completely forgiven. Father, help us to trust in you, knowing that you know best how to live life. and Help us to respond by putting our trust in you and living for you. And I pray that you'd help us to have love for those around us who are living lives that are completely unaware and oblivious to this fact. Help us to point them to the Lord Jesus so that they can have refuge in him. And I pray these things in his name. Amen.